Welcome to the Created to Flourish podcast, where we'll explore the believer's call to respond to great global need. In each episode, we'll be reading a chapter from a book called Created to Flourish, co-authored by Peter Greer and Phil Smith, and we'll examine how employment-based solutions empower families to use their God-given abilities to serve their communities. I'm your host, Hannah Ruth, Hope International's Regional Representative in Minnesota. In this episode, we'll put things in perspective, discussing how microfinance and savings groups fit into the larger set of tools that fight poverty. If you're just joining the podcast, we'd recommend going back and starting from episode one and listening to the episodes in order. Let's dive in. Chapter nine, it can't be that good, can it? Written by Peter Greer. Given the merits of microfinance and savings and credit associations, it would be tempting to see these as the tools for ending global poverty, as the tools with which the church can address physical and spiritual needs in every situation. This chapter is meant to temper any unrealistic expectations you might have about microfinance and SCAs. Sometimes exuberance for the observed results of microenterprise development causes its advocates to place that method on too high a pedestal. We must be frank and thoughtful about the shortcomings and limitations of financial services, lest we expect too much of them. Indeed, in recent years, several articles have come out questioning the impact of small loans on families in poverty. A February 2015 brief from Poverty Action Lab and Innovations for Poverty Action surveyed seven randomized evaluations on the impact of small loans on families in poverty and found only modest results. While they found that families didn't experience over-indebtedness, as some critics had hypothesized, they also didn't find much evidence of increased incomes among participants. What they did find was increased freedom among participants to choose how they invested their money, allowing for greater income smoothing and reducing the many risks inherent in poverty. Studies like these show the importance of not simply focusing on loans, but on providing a variety of services— including the training to use loans wisely and a safe place to save money. They also confirm that financial wealth is only a small part of true flourishing. These studies remind us to take a step back and ask some tough questions. What do we want? Eradication or alleviation? Some of the most ardent microfinance supporters suggest that it will eliminate poverty. Nobel Peace Prize winner Mohamed Yunus shared this vision. I firmly believe that we can create a poverty-free world if we collectively believe in it. In a poverty-free world, the only place you would be able to see poverty is in the poverty museums. Statements such as this are effective rallying cries, and extreme poverty has decreased tremendously, with the number of people living under $1.90 a day dropping from 37% in 1990 to less than 10% in 2015. However, over-exuberance may raise expectations to an unattainable and unrealistic level, as significant progress will never be the result of only one sector or one specific approach. Asserting that the goal of these services is poverty alleviation is quite different from asserting that the goal is poverty eradication. Many studies have shown clients increasing and diversifying their income and assets and decreasing their vulnerability. Even though anecdotal evidence shows it is possible to make large gains large enough to eradicate that instance of poverty, 
studies show that the norm is more modest, alleviation. Would a 100% increase in an income of $1 per day eradicate a family's poverty? Would a 500% increase? No, but it would alleviate their poverty and provide greater margin against income fluctuations or economic shocks. A 100% increase in income, even from $1 to $2, means a family eats better food, enjoys better health, improves their housing, and has greater confidence and hope for the future. Increased income can radically transform local churches as members increase their giving. An increase in income can provide a catalytic boost toward additional improvement, perhaps even permanent escape from poverty. The stories of some clients may not appear dramatic to those in wealthy nations and may not even register as a blip on a country's gross national product, but for the people earning $1 a day, a second dollar can make a huge difference. A tempered understanding of the impact of microenterprise development will help ensure new ways of expanding outreach to the millions who have yet to take advantage of this powerful tool, while at the same time protecting us from the damaging delusion that it will simply erase all of the world's financial problems. Loans can cause harm. Unlike other forms of aid, microfinance is not an end product. While a bag of rice is the solution for immediate hunger, microfinance is an opportunity, not a total solution. When an organization distributes rice in a neighborhood, families enjoy the end benefit of the project, food for the table. With microfinance, the client receives one ingredient, capital, in the broader recipe of income generation. The additional ingredients of time, work, and often an existing enterprise must be mixed with a loan in order to achieve the end result. Microfinance is a single step, albeit a very important one, in the process of poverty alleviation. Not every microfinance client enjoys dramatic success, a percentage fail, a reality in every market economy. Individuals eager to discredit microfinance might dramatize these examples and ignore the benefits obtained by the majority of microfinance clients. Yet even though harm is not the norm, nearly every MFI is focused on seeing their clients succeed. It is instructive to note some of the ways in which microfinance can fail and to remember that such failures represent human lives still trapped in poverty. Mama Beatrice heard of a promising opportunity in a district outside Kinshasa, the capital of the Democratic Republic of Congo. The rumor mill said that coffee beans could be sold profitably and quickly in this region due to the high cost of transportation and the fluctuating scarcity of certain goods. So sight unseen, she took out a small loan and invested her capital in coffee beans that she planned to sell outside Kinshasa. Unfortunately, the business rumors were just rumors. It took her months, not days, to sell her stock of coffee beans, and she was barely able to meet her loan repayments. Instead of continuing to work at her marginally profitable business as a shopkeeper, using her loan in that business, she ventured into an unsuccessful business based on a rumor and her desire for a quick profit. Galina and her daughter owned a small business selling clothing in a local market in Ukraine. They had been successful borrowers for two years and proved to be honest and responsible entrepreneurs. Hoping to expand their business, they left the local market and rented a storefront to become a department store. Using two $2,000 loans, they purchased new winter clothing and expected good sales. Unfortunately, 
the following winter was unseasonably warm and the income from the spar sales covered only part of their rent payments. The landlord confiscated their goods and forced them to leave. Problems can arise when small loans are misused or when the borrower fails to fully evaluate external risks universal to business. Sometimes a borrower seems to have no fault yet still fails. In some cases, the borrower is worse off for having taken out a small loan. Borrowing is inherently risky, and despite the best efforts of those involved, a percentage of microfinance ventures will fail. Realistically, failure to pay back loans is relatively rare among those in poverty. Instead, the client success rate is tremendously high, perhaps because microfinance clients have already been tested and toughened. Before microfinance enters a village, there are few options. Most likely, the only source of capital in town is a loan shark who charges exorbitant rates, yet many are still able to operate somewhat profitable businesses. It is no wonder most borrowers embrace microfinance loans and succeed in a new, more nurturing financial environment. Loans are not for everyone. Some people are born entrepreneurs, while others seem to lack the drive or talent to use capital effectively. Those who lack entrepreneurial skills might make honest, hardworking employees at factories, hotels, and other income-generating businesses, but very few opportunities for these types of jobs likely exist locally. When Westerners wonder how it is possible that so many hundreds of thousands of clients are clamoring for business loans, keep in mind that the economy in a developing country is dramatically different than it is in a country like the United States. In many places, formal employment opportunities simply do not exist, even at what we would consider the most basic levels. There are no fast food restaurants like McDonald's or Taco Bell, no retail chains like Walmart or Target, and few factories that hire manual laborers. White-collar jobs are even scarcer. The complex legal environment and government instability typically found in developing countries discourage foreign investment and compound the shortage of employment opportunities. In these situations, a person who wants to make money has almost no option other than self-employment. A worker's alternative isn't a boring job at a warehouse or collecting unemployment. It is destitution. Survival is a powerful impetus for individuals to try to sell whatever they can. A woman will bake a few extra loaves of bread to sell on the street, or a man will hawk a leather belt and a pair of shoes. In fact, many microfinance lows finance income-generating activities that supplement rather than replace family incomes earned from day labor agriculture, or other seasonal income. If company jobs were as scarce in the United States as they are in certain parts of Africa, and self-employment were the only option, there is no question that we would be a nation of street vendors and small-scale entrepreneurs, especially if the government did not provide social safety nets. Microfinance is but one piece of development. From a development viewpoint, there is a level of need below the threshold that loans can reach. In conflict and disaster situations, grants and emergency care are needed since people can focus on longer-term issues, such as employment, only after their most immediate needs are addressed. From a financial viewpoint, microfinance provides part of the foundation upon which to build communities, but there also needs to be the next level of small and medium-sized enterprises, as well as large corporations. All these work together, 
and the more a country advances, the greater the opportunities for large-scale investments. From a spiritual viewpoint, there is a critical need for further training of pastoral staff to teach congregations how to responsibly handle increasing financial resources and how to live out the gospel in every area of their lives. Economic prosperity will not automatically lead to significant community and church improvement. In fact, the opposite can occur. Lasting change and development require significant structural changes. Without a system of justice, corrupt leadership, like Zimbabwe's President Robert Mugabe, can literally destroy all the benefits of small-scale economic development in a day, as he did during Operation Maramvatsimina, translated, cleaning up the trash. Police bulldozed whole communities, including homes and businesses. Suspected to have been a means of punishing political opponents, this operation left 700,000 people without their homes, businesses, or both. Such injustices must be addressed, along with land reform, access to clean water, educational system improvements, eradication of malaria, and many other critical issues. Microfinance is changing. Gatherings for microfinance practitioners have changed dramatically over the past several years, a change easily seen in the participant's shoes. A colleague commented that when he started attending microfinance forums, Birkenstocks were the footwear of choice, but now he's more likely to see polished Salvatore Ferragamo loafers. There is no question that the sector has been professionalized and attracts a host of entrants from the banking and finance world. One consequence is there is a growing push in microfinance to focus not only on sustainability and aiding people in poverty, but on maximizing profit and shareholder return. If this trend continues, it's possible that distributing other services such as business and health education, key strengths of microfinance, could be cut off in the name of efficiency and profit. The growth in for-profit MFIs and MFIs seeking funding from commercial sources will fuel the need to achieve low-risk financial returns. Consequently, some MFIs may be more concerned with repayment and profit potential than with changing lives. Although these two goals should not be mutually exclusive, profit-maximizing financial entities could cause MFIs to have only one bottom line, profit. Technology is rapidly changing microfinance. Loan transactions by ATM cards or by cell phones are now occurring in all parts of the world. These and other advances in technology have the potential to reduce the perceived need for personal contact among borrowers and between loan officers and borrowers. Yet this personal contact, from the perspective of impact, education, and spiritual change, is indispensable. Given these dynamic changes, MFIs that want to do more than simply deliver access to credit and savings could appear less commercially viable from a financial viewpoint, which could hinder their ability to attract investments. Powerful, not perfect. Microfinance is not a perfect one-size-fits-all solution, but it is an effective tool to help individuals work their way out of poverty and into a better life. No nation has ever developed without investment, savings, and other financial services. Some critics assert that we shouldn't focus on microfinance because it harms a small number of individuals. But this would be akin to banning penicillin. One out of 5,000 individuals who takes penicillin has a severe allergic reaction, called anaphylaxis, which is fatal unless there is immediate medical intervention.
yet penicillin has saved hundreds of thousands of lives. It would be wrong to consider banning penicillin. Instead, we monitor its use to ensure it is properly administered to the right patients in a way that maximizes impact until something better is created. The same holds true for microfinance. Responsible providers regularly monitor the impact and ensure that the staff and group members understand the warning signs. When an individual is harmed by a small loan, the provider works that much harder to make sure that next time the loan is successful. To ensure the greatest impact, microfinance programs must guard against focusing exclusively on maximizing profit at the expense of families living in poverty. With microfinance such a potentially powerful tool for fighting poverty, how might the church become more involved? The answer involves examining the possibilities of fulfilling the missions of the church, SCAs, and MFIs through a new kind of partnership. Thanks for joining us on the Created to Flourish podcast. This podcast is a production of Hope International, a global nonprofit that responds to the call to serve those living in poverty by providing discipleship, biblically-based training, a safe place to save, and small business loans. If you're interested in learning more about Hope International, we invite you to check out Hope's website, www.hopeinternational.org flourish.